Ladies and gentlemen, friends, family, and fellow environmentalists, I'm Timo Mushin. And I'm Laura Herford. And we're here for another episode of Save the Planet, Why, Why Not? Why Not? Why Not? So today, we've got a very exciting and thorny topic lined up for you, which is geoengineering. And more generally, the idea that a technocentric approach can be the right solution for humanity to find um, the way out of this climate predicament that we're in. Um, we'll be talking about a lot of questions today. What roles will technological innovations have to play? What are some of the ethical considerations that have to be taken into account? Um, are we too far gone in our, the havoc we've already wrecked on nature to even um, consider pulling out and um, not intervening any longer? So these are some of the complicated issues we're going to be diving into. But first, let us introduce the wine we have this week. Yes. So today we have the Phantom River Sauvignon Blanc from Chile. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and read the description because it is quite poignant. I think it really hits the overall ethos of what we're discussing today. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. Named after this mysterious setting, Phantom River Sauvignon Blanc has enticing aroma of citrus followed by crisp concentrated flavors. Oh, excuse me. This is actually not the mythical part. This is <laughs> getting into the flavors. This is the less exciting part. There's That's, also a story attached to the back of this one. Let me get into the story. As I rode closer to the deepest part of the river, the sight of the lone fisherman slowly faded before my very eyes until I reached the point where he had been. The fisherman and his skiff had disappeared entirely as though they had been a vision or possibly a phantom. Wow, That's I mean, deep. that is powerful. That That's is extremely deep. powerful. And just in a few words, the reason why we chose this wine was because of the obvious connotations between the idea of a phantom, of a ghost, the, and, and the idea of geoengineering, um, the most important example of which is solar geoengineering, which could result in a white sky enveloping our planet and hovering above us, ghost-like, phantom-like. So that's what that's uh, led us towards the, the choice of this wine from Sainsbury's shelves. Okay, we're here we go. dive into the wine here. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Yeah, very good. <laughs> it, it, is, it, it definitely has like quite a kick in the back of the throat. Quite, quite a spectral, uh, spectral texture to it. Spectral texture, ladies and gentlemen. Quote that. <laughs> Incredible. Mm. Very good. Well, I alluded to the taste before the mythical story. So, named after mysterious setting, the French River Sauvignon Blanc has enticing aromas of citrus followed by crisp, concentrated flavors of tropical fruits with hints of lime, leaving a long, lingering finish. Mm. There's something to be said about that long, lingering finish, don't you think? I think there is, because, of course, um, the idea of long-term thinking is not something that comes to the minds of many of these scientists working on major geoengineering breakthroughs. Because, of course, the, the whole appeal of these solutions is that they provide short-term, but immediate and direct reprieve from, from the worst excesses of global warming. Um, on the other hand, the entire... Um, network of knock-on effects and the entire long-term 
consequences of these innovations are completely uncharted and not even taken seriously enough. So I think uh, it's, it's good that you brought up that idea of, of the long term because this wine does linger on the tongue in a way that perhaps these geoengineering solutions should linger on the minds yes. of these scientists before they put them into practice. And I think for all of our listeners out there, it would it would be good for us to define first what we're talking about here. For those of you who don't know what solar geoengineering is, or rather just geoengineering as an idea. So there are a couple brackets under this umbrella concept. The first is direct air capture. So the idea that we would basically suck carbon out of the air and sequester it in the ground. That can be done through a various um, slate of means. For example, a common one is planting trees, but also more mechanically, it is you know installing these very large fans, literally sucking out ambient carbon and then sequestering it in a mineral form into the ground. The other kind of bracket would be solar geoengineering. And that idea is about injecting sulfur aerosols into the atmosphere so it reflects incoming solar radiation. So right now, of course, the incoming energy from the sun hits the planet. Most of it reflects, but that reflection is then captured by the industrial greenhouse gas emissions, which have been mm -hmm. coming into there for the last 200 years, mm -hmm. which results in a warming effect. However, solar radiation management or sulfur aerosol in the atmosphere would reflect that. So it would re result in net cooling. Mm -hmm. So this is what we're going to be talking about a lot today is about this solar radiation management, or some have even called it dimming the sun. Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of shows the absurdity of this idea. And it is kind of still on the fringes of the environmental debate. The environmental debate about what to do is very much so concentrated on mitigating emissions rather than putting this blanket of sulfur around the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think that kind of gives a good introduction. And perhaps we should discuss our own personal immediate viewpoints on solar geoengineering or geoengineering at large do you want to yeah i, I think that's thoughts? a really good place to start like where are we coming from with regards to this topic what are our own um immediate instinctive reactions to this term of geoengineering i think uh, i don't want to put words into noah's mouth but i think both of us have an instinctive suspicion of this idea of playing god of of manufacturing or engineering uh, a better planet. Because of course, it, this is where we come to the main hypocrisy of geoengineering is that it continues with the very same mode of thinking that human that put us in this crisis mm -hmm. in the first place. Um, the idea that human ingenuity um, can find the solutions to the very problems it created is sort of self-contradictory. So in that sense, I, I'm quite suspicious to the idea that technology is our way out. Mm. Um, what would you like to add to no, that? No, I, I think I'd echo most of what Timo said there, is that there is something fundamentally wrong with the idea that we can out-engineer ourselves out of a crisis born from our own ceaseless engineering. Mm -hmm. There's something incredibly destructive about that philosophy and about the idea that humans can continuously intervene. And something that we'll bring up later is you know, humans have been kind of hailed as like the god of modernity, that mm -hmm. we are basically a planetary force and that our interventions have changed the biosphere permanently. Mm -hmm. So some would argue, well, we need to take that intervention a step further. We need to become good gods. That we don't have a choice but to take it one step right. further because we've already 
impacted it so severely that right. we have to continue changing it for and the better. Perhaps there is some merit for that, and some examples we'll highlight. But in a very large focus, I think there is something just so wrong with that idea that we pursue the same means that got us into this mess to get us out of it. So mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. And it's almost like it reminds me a lot about the United States, about the gun crisis yeah. and conservatives saying, oh, we just need more guns. We need, to, it, we need to arm schools in order to yeah. be able to repel uh, any gun attacks. And everyone knows that is completely nonsensical. And the idea that we would just pump sulfur aerosol into the atmosphere. And, I, and as all we know, the atmosphere is a very sensitive membrane that reacts to any small change. And we have no idea about the repercussions. And it's just like this easy way out. We're going to, you know, find this techno fix and we're going to be okay. Yeah. Rather than doing the hard things, which is changing the way our culture perceives nature, society, relations, the way we live on this earth, the way capitalism continuously degrades the planet. Those are hard. That is a very hard thing to do. And we need to overcome it as a society, as a global collective. And the idea that we're just going to pump sulfur into the atmosphere and we're going to be okay is just seems wrong. And I think it is wrong, as some science will suggest, and what we'll get into later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, re- I really like that. No, you've put it really nicely. And um, I think what you were saying about pumping sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, having effects that we can't really foresee, and the fact that the atmosphere is such a sensitive membrane, such a, uh, a sensitive um, composition mm-hmm. of... I mean, the whole planet is such a, a intensely complicated network of organisms that are dynamic and that have their own agency and their own inputs um, that it's, it might be considered folly to think in geoengineering terms that we can just shape it in a predictable way, in a way that suits our own purposes mm. without it um, responding in ways that we just completely cannot predict. Yeah. And I think it'd be good to tell our listeners that this show itself was largely inspired by a discussion that we attended a couple of days ago. And this discussion was between Elizabeth Colbert, whose recent book is called Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. And she was being asked questions by David Wallace-Wells, who's the well-known author of the book, The Uninhabitable Earth. So they basically discussed Colbert's findings in her book. She's by no means per se an adamant supporter of geoengineering or technological intervention, but she basically was on a mission to document all of the various things that experts and researchers and scientists are pursuing. So some of these anecdotes include, you know, editing organisms that live in a coral reef so that they can adapt to warming waters and warming, um, warming temperatures in the air. Another example is um, frogs and toads in Australia that were introduced as an invasive species to cure a beetle pop problem, but then got out of control and are now a real pest and that they're editing the genome of those, of those toads so that mm-hmm. they're less poisonous. So these are some of the smaller anecdotes and it ramps up to the idea about solar geoengineering and, you know, the host of different ethical implications that are embody all this research. So should we even be researching things as radical as geoengineering? How do we define nature in the age of the Anthropocene where the human has become such a planetary force? I mean, Mm -hmm. she highlighted a study saying that man-made biomass, such as concrete, Mm -hmm. you know, buildings in general, outweigh now natural biomass. So the imprint of the human footprint is greater than anything 
nature has produced or is, is on the planet right now, which is just an incredible idea, I think. Right. Um, and I think we came away from that really kind of, troubled. I would say, troubled, despondent, questioning the path we're down. And, you know, I think personally that if we commit to solar geoengineering, it just would be a nightmare. And I don't want to really live in a planet where, like, this is pursued. But it was, it was eye-opening in a certain way, but also very deeply troubling. Yeah, and I think the reason why it was troubling was the idea that nature is no longer um, a pristine environment that we can allow to go on as before. We can't cut ourselves off and return to this golden age of nature because that's no longer, no longer possible. We've already pumped enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to have long-lasting locked-in effects. Um, so in effect, we've already um, left our print as, mm. as a race on the entire planet. And I think the example that you gave of um, man manufactured objects and man-made objects outweighing mm. biomass is a really good one. Another one is um, the shocking fact that microplastics have been found at the bottom of Mariana Trench, but also in the base camp of Mount Everest. And may I also add, they've found that now in the human, human placenta. placenta. So it's a very good example of how a human-made Material is, is literally everywhere. Everywhere. Is everywhere. everywhere. There's no escaping it. No. no, there's no escaping it. So, what does that mean for our future interventions? Is it even ethical to take a step back to back away from the devastation we've already caused? Um, in a sense, you could argue that um, it is our role now to to mm. accept the fact that we have had this devastating global impact. And yeah. to try to manage it and mit and mitigate it, and um, and render it as um, as non harmful as yeah. possible. Um, well, I think a very interesting example is what I mentioned just before is the coral in Hawaii. So Hawaiian researchers are working yeah. on gene editing coral, like I said, so that they're resistant to warmer waters and warmer air temperatures. Of course, we have no idea. <laughs> the impact of gene editing coral, right? I mean, we have no idea how that reverberates through the ecosystem, through the chains of different predation. We have no idea. So I guess the question is, should we let those coral die? Because mm -hmm. we technically have the means of perhaps extending their life. Right. Or, yeah, or should we go ahead and gene edit them and perhaps have them as some type of like bionic alter life form, but still... <laughs> be technically alive like yeah is it does it serve us right almost like do we have to accept that loss a beautiful beautiful loss of the animal kingdom or do we have to intervene even more do we have to entrench ourselves even more in this very dangerous philosophy and and yeah it, at the expense so to create a mutant in the hybrid nature yeah. in order to ensure its survival or to accept that we've already caused irreversible damage and um to accept that there's nothing we can ethically do about it. Uh, that's an extremely difficult question to answer. And I think it's summed up, I mean, one side of that argument is summed up quite nicely by um, Stuart Brand with his comment in 1968 that we are as gods, we might as well get good at it. Mm. Um, that's, that doesn't sound like a very nice statement to make because it it just captures this this whole anthropocentric mode mm. of thinking that we as environmentalists are extremely critical of on the other hand i think 
it's important to go into a bit of semantic analysis here mm-hmm. because he doesn't say that we are gods. He say we have become as gods. And um, he's just recognizing the fact that the type of impact we've had on nature, for better or for worse, in this case for worse, has had divine, uh, almost godlike, um, omnipotent uh, consequences on the entirety of nature. So um, instead of turning our backs on that, we have to accept this divine-like power that we've gifted ourselves mm. um, and try to try to ch- use it for the better, try to learn how to be good gods. I'm, I mean, I'm extremely uncomfortable with saying this because it goes against my very, uh, my, my own ethics here, but, and, and it also disregards an alternative to this statement, which is that, I mean, we are, we have made ourselves to be as gods, but can we unmake ourselves as gods? Mm. Is there a way that we can maybe not immediately, because that would have extremely negative impacts on not just ourselves, but other species and our environment, but incrementally denounce the powers, the godlike powers that we've gained <laughs> thanks to the Industrial Revolution. Do you think that's a valid well, plan of action? That's a lot of food for thought. I think we are certainly at a point where, like I've been continuously saying, that humans are an all-encompassing force on nature. And we have become gods in a certain sense that we decide who lives or dies for better, for worse. I mean, we're in the sixth mass extinction and that is completely anthropogenic is completely human caused. You know, I think the UN estimated that a million species are going to go extinct within the next couple of decades. So we are terrible gods currently. Right, terrible. And the whole, this whole deification of humanity will ultimately come back to bite us because of course, we're also causing the climate crisis, which is in of itself an existential threat to our civilization into ourselves. So can we get rid of that? Hmm. I think oftentimes those kind of comparisons come back to the idea like we we live in a civilization and I think there are a lot of pitfalls with civilization. Can we get out of civilization? Can we return to hunter-gatherer lifestyle? Which I think is impossible kind mm-hmm. of. Once the genie is out of the bottle, there's no way of getting it exactly. back inside. Perhaps a way to you know imbue more humility within humanity is to reevaluate our relationship with nature. We continuously exploit, extract, and commodify nature, and we think that activity has no real impact. If we consider ourselves, once again, to be part of nature, rather than to perpetuate the fiction that we are without or beyond natural boundaries, that would perhaps chip away from that deity complex, that God complex. Is that, do you think that's a viable solution or perhaps a step in the right direction? I think it's a very viable solution, but I, I think what I drew away from this um, seminar that we attended was that, um, was that we, we can't really, um, by, by continuing to edit, <laughs> to, by, by deciding to gene edit these species, we are, in effect, continuing to be the masters of nature. That was my personal response to this. We, we aren't um, fostering a more regenerative and a healthier relationship with nature. We're carrying on down the same path of um, de- defining our own blueprints for yeah. the path that we want nature to follow, okay. which, which doesn't seem right at all, but which might have to be, in certain cases, the solution in order to keep 
parts of nature alive until we can let it take over again. I'm being the devil's advocate here. No, I think I think you bring up very valid points. I was just thinking that geoengineering is kind of like putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound. Hmm. Because like the, the planet is dying and the human race is like under real threat. Yeah. And the idea that we're gonna emit sulfur aerosols into the atmosphere, which will result in cooling. Um, I mean, oftentimes solar geoengineering is compared to a volcanic explosion. So when a volcano explodes, mm -hmm. it emits sulfur aerosols, which, like I said before, reduces the amount of solar radiation that hits the Earth in the first place. So Mount Pinatubo, which was one of the largest explosions in the modern era, it exploded in 1991, injected 15 to 20 million tons of sulfur dioxide gas into the stratosphere. And that resulted in a 0.3 to 0.5 degrees degrees decline in global temperature which is very i mean it doesn't seem like a lot but that is a huge yeah. amount um that idea of course that we can limit the amount of warming by pumping sulfur aerosols into the atmosphere so that kind of like buys us time right it buys us time to continue with our very slow way of decarbonizing our economy and it kind of gives almost capitalism a lifeline mm -hmm. but it does nothing about the emissions that are being emitted right now, which is killing people. I mean, there was a study done by researchers at UCL that said that eight to nine million people die per year from fossil fuel pollution. So that brings me back to the metaphor it is like a bandaid on a gunshot wound because it does nothing about the inequities present right. in our political economic order. It does nothing about the issue of fossil fuels, killing people, marginalizing them. It does nothing about our destructive relationship with nature. Hmm. So it is just like a plaster solution. It is, yeah. it is nothing really substantive. And just adding on to that, it, it, even in simpler terms, it does absolutely nothing about the actual cause of global warming, which is the buildup of heat-trapping greenhouse gases, mm. which will continue to be emitted. And which will, we haven't talked about this yet, but which will mean that any path down the solar geoengineering road will have to be an indefinite one. Mm. Because the way it works is that if we ever stop because the, these um, uh, sulfur dioxide particles have to be continuously pumped into the atmosphere. Um, but if they ever stop being pumped and this white shield around our planet suddenly yeah. disappears, then all the heat that we've been suppressing for, for the time yeah. between when we started down this path and when we give up on it will suddenly hit the planet all at once resulting in a spike in global temperatures and resulting in huge disruption. So yeah. basically that means that once we start down this, this path of solar geoengineering, we're in it for good. So our children, grandchildren, no one will know what a blue sky looks like. Look like. <laughs> It'll become a thing of the past. We want that. Yeah. To play devil's advocate, I think some proponents of solar geoengineering say, okay, we need to, sub we need to emit sulfur aerosol into the atmosphere right now and combine that with decarbonization. So if we work to chip away at global emissions while keeping temperature low so we don't face the worst of the climate crisis, then we can terminate the solar geoengineering solution and then have a truly sustainable, thriving world. Am I skeptical of that? Of course I'm skeptical. Because solar geoengineering, like I said, is a lifeline to capitalism. And capitalism continues to be the status quo. Do you think, do you, like, do we really think that once there's sulfur in the atmosphere and if that has no real discernible 
impacts, which of course will, the science tells us it will have real great impacts. On the global north, if it doesn't have any impacts on the global north. Yeah. Because we, we've, we're continuously confronted with the, the lack of, um, the lack of uh, attention that the consequences on the global south are already, that cl climate change's consequences on certain parts of the world are already having. Yeah. And uh, as we will um, present to you, Within a, in a moment, the um, ecological consequences of solar geoengineering are also uh, quite important and important to um, to emphasize because yeah. it would it'll seriously disrupt um, weather patterns, um, meaning that precipitation in um, certain uh, areas that are already affected by drought will be diminished even further, and places where the monsoon is already very heavy will just receive even more rainfall um, causing issues of its own so by um, causing a complete disruption of rainfall patterns again we'll just be causing the types of um, environmental knock-on effects but also social mm. um, and human suffering that we cannot really foresee yeah i mean the science suggests that there will be a range of impacts so like you said there will be droughts particularly in the tropics um large eruptions large volcanic eruptions which have been compared to solar geoengineering have forced el nino variability and for those of you who don't know what el nino is is basically when pacific ocean currents heat um resulting in hotter temperatures so it's it's a temperature anomaly in in the pacific ocean which has wide-ranging global impacts um, and yeah, like you said, it's a rich get richer, poor get poorer paradigm. It yeah. only exacerbates the inequalities present. And what I was getting to before is like the big economic players in our society, including the fossil fuel industry, including all the corporations that incentivize ceaseless consumption, which is a disaster for our environment. If you somehow mitigate the impacts of climate change in terms of just warming, there's no way that these vested interests with trillions of dollars basically mm. have you know they basically have our societies captive that they're gonna somehow say okay we'll get rid of that program if it allows for their business model to continue i mean mm. i think you, everyone needs to be completely skeptical and might i say just like completely debase that idea mm. that these actors are by any means benign and want what's best for the planet no they want what's best for their holders and for their bank accounts so it it does not do anything to solve the structural issues that got us into this dilemma in the first place. Right. So despite um, taking technological innovation to um, miraculous lengths, it's still a failure of the imagination to, um, on the part of humanity yeah. to find ways in which to restructure society in the fundamental ways that are needed well, to ensure a, a sustainable future. I, I think it brings up a really important point. Like, what does it say about our society that dimming the sun is more of a viable solution than perhaps overhauling the disastrous economic systems that we all adhere to? What does it say? I mean, like, I mean, my view, there is a real vapid moral imagination that has captured everyone. No, I, I think it is an issue. I think yeah. people can well, we cross up in the paradigm of, yeah. of inventing our way out of problems. Yeah, but... Like the idea that we're, we're going to dim the sun instead of like solving the structural solutions like us here, it's crazy that, th that this is even being considered. It is crazy that we're even at this brink 
where people are, are considering yeah. dimming the sun. Yeah. Where we're going to emit sulfur into the atmosphere. I mean, I continuously say this, but it just it just boggles the mind that this is even on the table. Yeah, and it, it has boggled other um, people's minds as well, such as uh, Naomi Klein, who we've mentioned in previous episodes. She has a pretty um, apocalyptic view of a geoengineered future. Um, I'd, I'd just like to read out this little dystopian image she, she paints. A milky geoengineered ceiling gazing down on a dying acidified sea. Now, that doesn't sound like a very uh, nice um, future to inhabit, but that's the path towards which we're step-by-step step moving. Because the truth is that when our backs are up against it, when the truly devastating consequences of climate change become apparent, any the opposition that currently is winning against these geoengineering solutions will fade into the background and an urgent, um, quick-fire and immediately implementable solution will become extremely attractive to a lot of people in powerful positions. Yes, exactly. Now, I think that analysis also brings up a passage that I'd like to share from the book called Corona Climate Chronic Emergency by Andreas Mom. So he says, judging from the reaction to COVID-19, they will grasp for control measure that can flatten the curve at once. And there is one such known in the libraries of science solar geoengineering. Spraying sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere is the single kind of injection with a potential to instantly reduce planetary fever. However large in scale, direct air capture would need decades to bring temperatures down. Sulfate aerosol injection can cut insulation from one month to the next. Year after year of business as usual, this is the pseudo solution that sneaks up on us like a thief in the night. Like a thief on a night? in the night or like a fisherman on a raft. <laughs> oh, bring it back to the wine. And actually, I do need a top up now. If you yeah, can. absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, I think the imagery of the thief of the night is just so powerful. Because like you said, it is. Once climate chaos becomes, you know, you cannot ignore it anymore. It's in the face, and especially in the face of the global north, because as of yet, the vast majority of climate impacts have been impacting the global south which brings up a host of all other issues, the inequality that the global north has its wealth because of an industrial hmm. carbon economy that allow them to you know, accelerate at the expense of the global south. Um, but once those impacts become super obvious and it's too late to initiate all of those structural solutions that activists have been clamoring for for decades, then they will resort to emergency measures. Mm -hmm. And those measures will point in one direction, and that is dimming the sun. And I think that is that, I mean, it might get sound conspiratorial to say that that is a lot of what capitalists or people in, in power, whether that be fossil fuel executives, want. Do they want that almost? That we reach that emergency level and then we reach for the lever that seems most convenient and doesn't necessitate real change, but will immediately like, mom says here limit planetary fever yeah, i don't think that's far-fetched i think the fact that these very um wealthy executives um and billionaires are the ones pouring money into these mm. geoengineering solutions suggests that for them that wouldn't be the worst case scenario it would potentially even be a lifeline as we were saying earlier for them to continue their extractive and, and damaging um business models um but 
I think it is important to point out that despite um, solar geoengineering being such a crazy issue and such an incredibly almost dystopian idea that might be tempting to just dismiss out of hand, it has to be uh, engaged with as a serious issue by scholars, by environmentalists, by philosophers, um, because it's so crucial for people to develop at this stage while there's still time, a narrow window, but there's still time <laughs> to develop ways about thinking of the ethics of using such technologies, because we can be sure that um, governments, private entrepreneurs, even military institutions are definitely pouring the, the funds uh, and their energy into developing these technologies either way. So we can't afford to have ethics lagging behind science on the, um, as it did in certain other cases in human history, these pattern projects. Mm. So on that warning note, we'd like to take you into a musical interlude. Here's Life on Mars by David Bowie. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed that very beautiful interlude by the great David Bowie. So far, we have discussed a lot about solar radiation management, yet in my introduction, I said that that is only one of the brackets under the geoengineering umbrella. We also, of course, have to discuss direct air capture, or the idea that we're going to suck ambient carbon dioxide and put it into the ground in mineral form. There is a company in Switzerland called Climeworks, which has actually been developing these large-scale fans which would be positioned onto roofs or onto factories and they would suck carbon from the air and then that carbon would be somehow developed with a chemical process that it's solidified and then they have been injecting that as rock into iceland so it's pretty miraculous technology although it's been around for a long time because submarines have also of course had to scrub the carbon out of the that confined area so that people can breathe oxygen um the issue is that there is no real quote-unquote market for carbon. I mean, nobody's going to buy carbon, really, because there's no real economic incentive. So what's been happening is that this carbon has been then sold to, if it's not turned into rock, it's sold to, you know, big soda companies like Coca-Cola to carbonate drinks, or it's used for synthetic low-carbon fuels for the aviation industry. So the carbon right now is actually not sequestered. It's just recycled which says a lot about the profit motive of our economic system. But, you know, increasingly it's clear that the IPCC says that we need negative emission technologies, whether that's forests, whether that's big fans on factories. So it's something that needs to happen if we are to limit warming to 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees. Um, yeah, so I, I guess it's this continued theme we've just been discussing about technological hubris and overconfidence that we can out-engineer ourselves out of the problem. However, the best science suggests that this is something that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So how do we navigate that, you know, clearly destructive philosophy, but also saying, oh, well, we need to somehow continue our ceaseless engineering. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely thought-provoking that um, a lot of the plans for potential net zero futures that have been developed, a lot of the the models um, on which these reports have been based um, almost take it for granted that more effective carbon capture and negative emissions technologies will be developed mm. over the coming decades. So they're basing these reports on non-existing technologies, um, basically hoping that the technologies will come in and, and fill that gap. So 
there, there's something a bit scary about that thought that we're basing our hopes off of currently non-existent or well no as no described they do exist but they're definitely not applicable on the scale yeah. that's required and they're extremely expensive as well yeah at this point in time they're not commercially viable on a large mm -hmm. scale there are kind of like pet projects that the fossil fuel industry certainly has poured money in because it would extend a lifeline to their destructive economic profit model but they're by no means widespread they're very insulated still and they have no real like viability to be scaled um but they, they need to be increasingly used and how do we navigate that i mean a lot of people i think would naturally gravitate towards the idea of a forest you know mm. a forest sequesters sequesters carbon however there are some caveats to that so forests sequester the majority of their carbon from the age of 15 to 25 so it takes a while for them to really reach peak carbon sucking mm. if that's what you want to call it <laughs> um the other issue is that these carbon plantations tend to be monoculture mm. so they ignore issues of biodiversity and more susceptible to, to fires that's a, the other point the recent california wildfires there was an incident where you know extending one state up in oregon that a wildfire literally burned entire carbon offsetting plantation of trees which shows like again the the kind of overconfidence that tree like planting trees is going to get us out of this could trees be part of the solution certainly but it's by no means a silver bullet right and that's that is quite a horrifying scenario in which our uh, global efforts to plant these offsetting forests suddenly um, turn sour when these forests go up in flames and become <laughs> massive emitters in themselves. Um, and I mean, we're heading towards that sort of climate in, in which these um, forest fires are going to become increasingly unpredictable and increasingly frequent. Um, so how do we develop buffers against that? Um, is it possible to do so without reverting to some of these more um, potentially reliable and technologically informed solutions like carbon capture? Yeah. Well, I think a personal revelation that I've had is, you know, I, I study sustainability in university. I'm, I constantly read news about pertinent environmental updates. But something that's never really crossed my mind is that there is already too much carbon as is in the atmosphere. So say there's a miracle and that we completely stop emitting any greenhouse gas tomorrow. The amount of carbon in the air, which is around 415, 416 parts per million, is way too much. It is at a level not seen in millions of years. In fact, one study suggests 3.3 million years, which completely outstrips the existence of humans on this planet. So we literally, we literally live in a no analog Earth, and we, we need to somehow get rid of this carbon. Um, Trees could be part of the solution. Like I said, the climb works. Big fans could be part of the solution. But like somehow the carbon needs to get out of the air. And the carbon already in there will cause feedback loops that will continue, such as warming oceans, which, which is a process that yeah, will extend yeah, yeah. for centuries, or melting ice that will extend for centuries. So even if we were to stop somehow emitting emissions tomorrow, we would still have to somehow adapt to climate impacts, which raises the question, how do we get damn carbon out of the air which i mean is a massive issue and i do not see really much hope within our current status quo of solving that there is a very radical solution proposed by andreas Baum, 
he in, in the book where I just shared a passage from. So he suggests that fossil fuel companies should not be prosecuted, you know, and then just fall by the wayside mm. as climate villains of the past. Instead, they should be equipped by the state and they should be harnessed to clean up their act, if you will. Mm. So what he suggests is that fossil fuel companies should basically become carbon sequestering public utilities. So they have the means to actually suck the carbon out of the air and then inject it into the, um, into the ground, excuse me. So there's no profit motive. There's no means of making money. It's basically been totally nationalized by the state, turned into carbon sucking entities, which I think is like a very mm, yeah. innovative and creative idea. Poetic justice as well, yeah. somehow, that the, uh, the polluter pays. I think that's taking it to its full length. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's a really nice idea rather than having heads roll. We can... Uh, <laughs> we can co-opt these existing workforces and existing industries and just give them a completely different business model but without not having even the, the, a not even a, I, I use the term business model yeah. but this it's not a business model because there's going to be no profit motive of, as you were saying of course for that to become reality one thing that needs to happen and it's something we've been discussing recently in our flat is that the fossil fuel industry needs to become nationalized like as soon as possible they're bad faith actors. They have gotten us into this crisis through their sinister campaign of denying climate change, spreading disinformation. They need to be nationalized by the state and completely co-opted and then just killing their business model. Because I recently, I mean, I read an article today that Shell wants to continue drilling and producing oil through 2050. Yeah. And at accelerated rates. And then they... And then they claim, of course, that they're going to be net zero because they're relying on technologies like carbon sequestration, direct air capture there in its infancy. I mean, yeah, and they're only investing one to two percent of their um, of of their revenue of their uh, budget into developing yeah. these new technologies, which is just an, an attempt to to greenwash their yeah. uh, their audiences and continue with their much more harmful and much more profitable um, existing extractive um model because it's true that they've th the way these companies exist and the way they continue to exist and, and maintain shareholder faith is to prove that they have a long-term plan mm. and to do so they've already staked out existing sources of um of unconventional fossil fuels um enough in fact to um contribute eight times the amount of uh, fossil of greenhouse gases that the atmosphere could absorb without causing mass ecological collapse okay. eight times over it's just at, at this current moment that's without um without taking into account any future um, plans or investments that they make but they're contractually obliged to continue extracting from those sources and to continue selling their products and polluting until the world world is destroyed eight times over <laughs> So it's almost, it it's is, almost com I mean, it's, uh, it's almost a dark comedy. It's a joke. You, you, and we laugh, but it's actually extremely sinister. I think you just made the perfect case for nationalizing the oil industry. The perfect case. We need to just end this practice as soon as possible. We cannot wait for market forces to put away like fossil carbon for good. It needs to happen today. And the state needs to become involved as soon as possible. We have 10 years left to cut emissions by 45%. 
relative to 2010 levels by 2030. What what pace are we at right now? Oh, well, we're projecting the carbon emissions by 0.5 percent by 2030. 0.5. We're 44.5% off where we're supposed to be. And this is an existential threat. Where is the urgency from our leaders? Where is it? If we are serious about direct air capture, then we should be having a multi-country, a global effort with all the financial resources we can marshal to make this technology scalable. It is nowhere to be seen. It's, it's baffling. It's baffling. <laughs> it almost makes you question, like, am I somehow misguided in my apprehension of the current moment? Because where is the urgency? Where is it? It's nowhere to be found. And it just is shocking the sheer abdication of our leadership that we are in this position and that there still is so little traction on these solutions that are now, of course, necessary, even if it entrenches a dangerous philosophy that we can out engineer ourselves mm -hmm. out of this crisis. Uh, I don't know how we move forward, folks. I, I don't really know. It might have to require some type of revolution. I don't know if you want to call it revolution, <laughs> but like real political action. This is a watershed moment in our, in our history on this planet. And it is indeed. And it's a, it's yeah. a moment that we have to grasp. It's a climate moment that has to be taken advantage of and, um, and wielded to shape a better society yeah. because it's, it, it's not, it's not a question of do we act or, or do we change or don't we? It's a question of do we change on our own terms while we still can, mm. or do we allow changes to occur to us in a chaotic future? um that's outside of our control yeah I, I think that is the essential question and geoengineering i think doesn't factor into that calculus i mean it does in the the more pernicious half that yeah geoengineering is not part of a better society that we want to shape no a white sky is not something i want my kids or my grandkids to experience and i mean that is only aesthetic like not to mention the climate chaos compounded by the aforementioned impacts of geoengineering. Mm -hmm. So it is perhaps the antithesis of the utopian climate society that we want to fashion. I, I'd agree with that. I think that's a, a really nice conclusive point, actually. Um, and just to, to leave you with a little bit of, a little bit of wisdom, here's a, a beautiful quote. Our science is a drop, our ignorance, the sea. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. We've been Save the Planet. Why, Why not? <laughs> Why not? Why not? And we'll see you next week for another episode. Thank you and good night.